0: of oh, RBCS wow. oh, and software test professionals. Welcome to this webinar on top on ten things all managers and developers should know about testing. I am Russ Flash, President of RBCS. A worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1999, RBCS has delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Our team of international consultants deliver customized training. Consulting and outsourcing services for companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of 12 books on software testing, including the best managing the testing process and 4 books on the ISTQB program. WCS is presenting this webinar in partnership with software test professionals. You can check out their website at softwaretestpro.com. Tenants to of today's webinar does earn PMI-TDU's Thank you, Linda Thorne, for reviewing the materials for PDU status and making valuable suggestions. Attendees will receive an email telling them how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. we we start the presentation, a couple of notes. Feel free to submit questions at any time. Please note that I will answer them only at the end after the main presentation is over. Presentation is available in PEX format on the web, rbcs.us.com, go to the resources tab, and from there, uh, navigate to the basic library. By attending this webinar, you have automatically been registered. For the free e-learning drawing, check your email over the next couple of days and watch the fan folder. Hope you enjoyed this free webinar from RBCS. We do use free webinars as a service, to the software testing community. Because at RBCS, we are a non for profit company. Okay, so, on with the show. You ever going to look like this guy's doing this? Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm totally confused. Is, uh, does that happen to you? Hmm. Why would that happen? People look at you strangely? or are sitting there going, oh, here's test results and they mean this and they mean that and people are looking at you like is this guy uh, actually from Mars or um, should we be understanding what he's saying Um, when bugs get found in production do people show up and ask you why didn't you find this bug but they never ask the developer why did you put that bug in there well this could just be a matter of they're confused about what you do and why you do it so I put together this presentation based on conversations that I've had with a number of developers and managers about testing. Um, It's given me some insights into uh, misunderstandings that they have about uh, what we do and why we do it. Okay, so we'll start off with the most common uh, misconceptions, which is the why didn't you find all of the bugs um, opinion, belief, idea, question. Um, it's, a lot of people do think, a lot of non-testers do think that testers should find all the bugs. They believe that there is a finite number of bugs, which is of course true, but they also think that that bug is, that that, that number is small. Finite, small number of bugs which can be discovered uh if testers simply have um, the right motivation and skill—that—that yes, uh, that is, without a doubt, the biggest, uh, most common misconception. Um, and notice that it's—it's it's, you know, part of that is motivation. So there's the there's the should piece. Not only can you find all the budget, you should. Now, should is a tricky word because when people use the word should uh, in reference to uh, what somebody else should be able to do, Um, the implication there is that the absence of doing so, a failure to do so, uh, indicates some sort of moral laxity or uh, laziness, Uh, it's it's, it's basically the assertion is that it's contemptible behavior if you do not, right? Think about any time you use the word should, Um, if somebody doesn't do what they should, you know, always it's, it's a matter of contemptible behavior. Um, in some form or another. Um, So, people think this is the case, but it never is. Um, I've measured testing groups around the world, um, and a fairly typical number for the defect detection effectiveness is 85%. Now, the defect detection, detection effectiveness for a testing team can be calculated by looking at the number of bugs that they found and then dividing that number by the sum of the number of bugs they found plus the number of bugs subsequently found in production. So if the test team finds 85 bugs and 15 bugs are found in production, then you have 85% defect detection effectiveness. 85 divided by 85 plus 15 is 85%. Now, really, really good test that uh, I've looked at get um, 95% or above. I have seen 99 once with <laughs> very special circumstances. a team that had an exceptionally stable testing process um, and also uh, exceptionally good upstream uh, testing processes and other quality processes. And this is something people sometimes don't understand, um, including testers that, you know, they, it seems like give me a product that has a lot of bugs in it and I'll find a higher percentage of them because there will be a bunch of them that are really, really easy to find. But the, the very target-rich environment gets used sometimes. Um, but in reality what happens is in those situations you get so many, the little bugs are hiding behind the bigger bugs scenarios that you actually run out of time uh, to find Um, a lot of the bugs. So your defect detection effectiveness will actually typically go down when there's a larger number of defects delivered to you rather than go up. And of course there are other things, you know, delay in in delivery of of software or just delay in delivery of software that's actually in any sense ready for testing will uh, also reduce your defect detection effectiveness. So there are a lot of things that can push your, your defect detection effectiveness down and most of those, well, most Many of those things are beyond your control to a greater or lesser extent. Now, you say, whoa, this is really depressing. I can only find 85% of the bugs and I think people are going to freak out if I tell them that. Well, okay, that's the bad part. Um, the good part of this is that you can focus. We're going to talk uh, uh, more about risk-based testing a little later. You can focus and uh, find... Um, a much higher percentage of the important bugs so let's say you you your test team finds um your test team finds uh say 90 um bugs and um, subsequently, um the, the 10 additional bugs are found in production so your your defect detection effectiveness is 90 percent which is you know better than average, but still you're missing one out of ten bugs. People might say, "Well, bad. Well, if if twenty of the bugs were important and you found nineteen of them, and only one of those bugs was found out of production, then you have a 95% defect detection effectiveness for important bugs, which is obviously a lot better. Now, you know what you want to do is get up into that 99% range with the important bugs, and the way you're going to do that is via yeah, 1st So, this brings us to the question of, well, if you can't find all the bugs, well, what, what are you doing for it? Well, we are finding most of the bugs, yes, but perhaps the most important thing that we can do for managers and other stakeholders is to Show them what the risks are. What's been tested to what extent? What hasn't been tested? What does what is known not to work? Um, now, I don't want to get into a whole discussion on risk-based testing here in detail. Um, if you are interested, there are a number of free videos available for you to watch on the digital library and the RBCS web page. And there's also um, Articles, uh, available that you can read on Earth-based testing on the articles page and, uh, the basic library and I think the advanced library. There's so probably about three or four articles and, uh, probably a dozen or so, dozen or more, uh, videos that, uh, that you can take a look at to see, you know, what is Earth-based testing and how are we doing it right. And if you do Earth-based testing properly, you'll be able to accomplish a couple things. One is reducing risk to an acceptable level prior to release, in other words, the risk of failure occurring in production. Um, And you'll also be able to present your test results in such a way that the managers and and other stakeholders will understand what the risks are that remain. What is, in other words, the residual level of risk? Um, uh, Which risks? Of the quality of the system, have been mitigated by adequate testing, and which ones have not? Um, and the risk is not mitigated either because it is not yet fully tested, or um, it is tested and it's known to have problems. Now, probably one of the uh, one of the other very common uh, misconceptions that's out there, and it, it comes back again and again, is like a, a vampire you can't pull up. Um This idea anyone can test. Now, I think we've been making some pretty good strides on this in the 90s in terms of establishing testing as a separate sub-profession within software engineering. Um, unfortunately, a couple of influential people within the Agile community um, made some comments that have been um, unhelpful commenting books, very popular books, that have been very unhelpful in this regard. Um, one of the examples here is Schradler's book on Scrum, his first uh, first book on Scrum, where he basically said, you know, any, anyone can test and anyone can do design as those no skills involved. That's not a direct quote, but that's pretty close to what he said. Um, so that kind of brought this back in, in vogue uh, a little bit, that, you know, anybody can test. right there has been a fair amount of pushback against that. You know, you've got people out there like in, in the Agile world like uh, uh, Lisa Crispin and Janet Gregory, who's done a good job of publishing a couple books, uh, pushback on that and sort of establish testers as co-equal members of uh, the Agile team with uh, special skills. Which is, of course, the reality, regardless of the life cycle. Um... You do need special tools to do it well. I'm uh, sure anyone can test badly. <laughs> you know, you can you can turn anyone loose and have them test and can do a crappy job of it. But uh, what I'm talking about is really uh, you know, doing a good job of testing. And definitely, there are, there are four areas where I would say it's absolutely essential to have people who are not only specialized tests, uh, but they're specialized in that particular area or type of testing. So... I'd say security is one of those types. It's a very special kind of testing, requires very special skills. Performance and reliability are closely related and the same set of skills is approximately involved in those, so that'd be another area where I'd say, you know, look for someone who specializes in performance and reliability and it's related to uh, a uh, field of dynamic analysis. Um, test automation, being able to do proper shifting, to use security, uh, test automation tools and so forth. That's definitely a, a very specialized uh, area that requires very uh, strong skills, again, to do well. Um, you know, I had plenty of uh, clients who, you know, their, their strategy for test automation is to take a couple really smart programmers straight out of college and turn them loose to see what happens. And uh, I've not ever yet come into a situation where in the long run that story turned out to be anything other than a failed automation yep. Um, and another um, uh, an area where special skills are required is uh, structural or white box testing. You know, you have to really understand, um, understand the programming language that you're using, yes, but also the, the various uh, kinds of, of coverage, uh, white box coverage. And, and a lot of people do not understand that. Even the typical programmer, if you ask the typical programmer to explain the difference between statement coverage and branch coverage, they might very well not be able to do that and almost certainly it's the case that if you ask a typical programmer that, you know, say, if you're working on a safety critical piece of software and you need to achieve MCDC coverage um, in order to be sure that uh, uh, the, uh, all, the, all of the uh, decision logic is uh, programmed correctly within that. But, you know, they to say MCDC coverage, isn't that like a block band? So they're going they to have no idea. So, you know, that's another area where testers can take special skills of knowledge. Okay, so um, here is another, this is a more recent um, misconception, uh, not one that's come back. It's, it's one that has been introduced. Um, now, so I want to be clear, I, there are a lot of things about Agile that are working very well for our clients, and I'm certainly uh, not uh, a, uh, I, would not, I would not say, uh, you know, Agile doesn't work, it's all a scam, etc. Um, I think that there has been a lot of hype in Agile, and I think that some of the originators of Agile, like Schwerber, like as I guess you said before, and like that, as I'm about to give you the example now, have said some things that have not it's just, don't strike me as very wise or well-considered. Um, so one of these things, and this, this again comes from Kent Beck, um, the father, or one of the fathers of extreme programming. Um, now, in, in extreme programming, you know, they have what's called test-driven development. And in test-driven development, what you do is you uh, you create your automated unit tests using a framework like, say, JUnit or unit. Um, or any one of the other unit testing frameworks out there, you create a test first, small little test, and then you write enough code to make that test, those tests pass, and then you create some more tests, and you write enough code to make those tests pass, and so forth. Um, Now, some of our clients claim to be doing TDD, but they actually do it the other way around. They write some code and write some tests, and write some code and write some tests. Uh, TDD experts would say that's absolutely not test-driven development. It's not TDD. You You have to write the test before the code, but, but either way, the outcome is the same. You have got a piece of code, and you got a associated set of automated unit tests. Now, what what has been said, um, in, in for example, in Kent Beck's kind of Extreme Programming, is that if you have this automated set of unit tests, you can make any change you want to the code. And the phrase uses refactoring the code. You can refactor the code anytime you want. And you don't have to worry about breaking anything because you've got your set of automated unit tests. Now, this this, this is really an outlandish and stunning claim to make because um, let's think about defect detection effectiveness. I just mentioned that for, for system-level testing, system integration-level testing, it's typical defect detection effectiveness is 85%. Now, if you look at unit-level tests, and Capers Jones has done some studies on these, What you see is that unit level tests range from 10% up to 50% at best defect detection effectiveness. And that's not to say that you know that if you're only at 50% of some kind of bug, you are going to 100% of regression bugs. No, I mean that's, that if you break something at best with automated unit tests, really well written automated unit tests, you have a 50-50 chance of that's that's the fact. Um, now, maybe if um, if that core here, he would come back and say, "Well, I write even better unit tests than that." Well, okay, fine. If you, say you write eighty-five percent, ninety percent, still you're going to miss some regression uh, bugs. So any any assertion that I can change the code any time I want because I have a set of tests, to do regression testing. It doesn't matter how those tests will produce. The fact is that there's no set of tests that is 100% proof against bugs. And so, therefore, you can't rely on a set of tests to eliminate regression risk. So, very, uh, it's a very outlandish claim, but certainly one that has, has uh, in, in spite of its outlandishness, gained a lot of currency. And, um, again, you know, kind of, it, it piggybacks off of the, um there's the first misconception of, you know, testing should be able to find all the bugs, right? If you have that misconception, then this one is easy to swallow as well. Okay. There's a sip of water here. We're having some uh, incredible pollen issues down here in South Texas. And, and uh slightly scratchy you real little. Okay. Now back um, back in the early 70s, a fellow named Fred Brooks wrote a book called *The Mythical Man-Month*, um, which was which uh, certainly is um, one of the still one of the great books in uh, software project management. Uh, very relevant even today. Only a few parts of it are have been overtaken by. Uh, technology such as, uh, the section that talks about managing, uh, memory space on an IBM mainframe, but that's a, a page. Um, he followed that book up with an article called No Silver Bullets, which I believe now is, is included in the, uh, newer editions of, uh, of the uh, Mystical Man and in that book, he basically said that there's two, there are two different kinds of complexity. Um, there's what's called essential complexity and accidental complexity. Now, in essential complexity, what that means is, it, you know, something is just hard. Accidental complexity is where you make something hard by the way that you're approaching the problem. The problem. Um, so what he said was that there are things in software engineering which are accidental complexity that we we make things harder for ourselves than they need to be. Um But there are other things that are essential complexity, that are just hard. And there aren't gonna be any sort of magic bullets or silver bullets that are gonna solve the um that are gonna solve the problem. Um so The reason that he wrote this is because even at that point in time, uh, there had been um claims of some magical qualities of certain sort of advances. In fact, um uh Boris Fiber in I believe it was a software test technique, included this section, um that was mockingly entitled, um uh I'm getting my Latin right here, salvatoria Salvatore which means this is a, the language, um, the language is the savior. The language will save us. Um, and what he was referring to was the trend in the 70s and 80s for people to say, well, I'm going to use Algold 6 b or or PL1 or you know, structured programming is going to you know solve all the problems. And, you know, if we just didn't use go tos anymore, everything would be great. Um, and, and that was that was you know what was happening in the in the seventies, and um, and then you know we got object-oriented programming, and Six Sigma came along, and total quality management, and another thing that's come along, and you know the list goes on and on. And, and the latest, the latest uh, advance, and it is an advance um small wick silver bullet properties are being claimed is agile software development right um now again i don't want to come off and say agile is bad or be seen as someone says agile doesn't work um it certainly um has helped a number of our clients uh do be things better some of our clients have tried it and it did for them some have tried it and it does it does help um but it doesn't it, it, it can't be um, the universal fix to everything that's wrong with software engineering, uh, because after all, it's just, it's just a development process. They're just, they're just rules for how you organize the work. That's all it is. Um, and anybody who thinks that the, that the only the only area of, of complexity in software engineering is how we choose to organize the work, and that's just craziness. Um, Obviously, there is essential complexity strewn uh, through throughout software engineering. Some of it has to do with how we organize the work. So, openly, you can't make the problems all go away. Certainly, there's accidental complexity and improper implementations of the b model or the waterfall led to a lot of accidental complexity, and it's no surprise that people reaction to that. But you know, to say that Agile by itself is going to magically solve all of the problems uh, that we have with software, and there, and there are myriad and very serious problems, um, is, uh, is fantastical thinking. It's, it's a fairy tale. Um, and it, it is the latest in a series of fairy tales that have been told. Um, and if you're wondering why would such fairy tales get told, the reason is because some people get rich off of them. Some people manage to make a great deal of money exploiting fads, um, and um, that you know what's interesting is when pundits of any kind are proven wrong, um, they never have to give all that money back. Ever you notice know, that? Watch the news sometimes, you know, listen to somebody, write down some of the predictions and statements that some of these talking heads uh, will make on TV, and then a year later, see if, if they were right. Um, they're wrong a large percentage of the time, um, but you'll never hear one of them apologize. And you'll certainly never hear one of them offer to give back the money that they received at speaking fees based on their uh, long-headed statements. So this is, uh, you know, this is not a phenomenon to find two software engineers. Um, there are hucksters uh, about in, in the world, and they'll be there trying to sell you uh, you know, Snake oil uh, back in the Wild West and quality uh, uh, software engineering silver bullets now. But just keep in mind that at this point, you do not have reputable, broad-based studies uh, showing any sort of significant increase in the uh, uh, quality of the delivered software based on a particular life cycle. In fact, I'm aware of, I'm unaware of any studies, even with limited scope, that compare and contrast. Now I did talk to somebody. um, When was this? Last week, who said that he his organization had experienced a significant increase in quality. uh, He thought, and I said, um, that's fantastic. Please write an article or a paper about that because we need more more empirical evidence here and less um, wild and outlandish claims. Okay. Um test tools. I love test tools. This is one of the great things that comes that has come out of the Agile world and kind of in parallel with Agile's been uh, open source software movement. Um not entirely overlapping, but it's uh it's partially overlapping and there's been a lot of great tools that have come out of open source and agile um communities and uh um, and that really, I think, uh, raised the bar for the commercial tool vendors, which is great because it can improve their offerings and have to offer more value. So, you know, what's uh, it's harder for the commercial tool vendors to make as much money as it was prior to the advent of these tools, Um, I'm sure that most of the investors aren't crying too hard in our beer for them. Um, So, you know, it, it uh, forces better tools to be available. And there are a lot of tools out there. The thing is that um just because a tool exists doesn't mean that anybody can use it um now those kinds of, of marketing claims from commercial tool vendors are not, not unusual oh yeah sure you know anybody can use this it's really easy um i can see why they would need to say that because you might have to say something like that in order to sell a very expensive tool but um Reality is open source or commercial. um, When tools are uh, solving complex problems, remember central complexity. um, They're they're going to require that the person understand what they're doing. So I've run into this numerous different examples. Um, I've had developers on a number of occasions about you know, what what level of coverage they're achieving, and they give me a number, and then I say, sorry, it was a setup, a statement or a branch, and they can't explain the difference to me. What's the difference? Didn't they do the pain? No. Um, I remember having somebody who had no training or experience with performance testing, who was very proudly walking me through his performance test results, and I pointed out that he had failed to set up the load generation properly, so when he thought he was um, running the test uh with the system under 100 simultaneous users of load, he was in fact running it with about 20 simultaneous users, um, which was kind of a dead giveaway when you saw the CPU go up and then go back down and go up and back down and you know dwell at about 5%. So it didn't take a whole lot of knowledge to look at his results and realize oh, that's just wrong, but it was more knowledge than he had. And, you know, as I said before, jury um, automation, uh, you know, this is this is a classic. We that that have smart people that have a programming background. We're going to have them write a whole of our jury automation. Uh, okay. Um, I'd be willing to bet 18 months from now, every single bit of automation work that they, they do in the first six months will have been thrown away for sure, if not every piece. Altogether. So, if you misuse tools, you get confusing results. You get meaningless results. You get misleading results. Um, and, you know, the whole, one of the main objectives uh, of testing um, is to give people information that they can use to make better decisions. Now, if you're giving people information which is incorrect, um, misleading, partially incorrect, then, you know, surprise, surprise, bad decisions will occur. So, you know, yes, tools are great, but people need to know what they're doing uh, before they start using them. If they don't know what they're doing, they need to use the tool they need to either teach themselves or get training in how to use it. Now, um, <clears throat> Here's another thing that, that is very important for everybody to understand: testers, as well as developers and managers. Um, ultimately, well, let, let me start with, with a sort of a um, what do you call this? It? A corollary misconception, I guess. Something that's kind of related to this, um, which is the idea that that counting up test cases and um, looking at things like the percentage of tests that have been run, the percentage of tests that have passed, the percentage of tests that have failed and and, and using those numbers as a way of measuring the quality of the product um, the the idea that 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 technique is meaningful is a very common misconception. Test case counts Using metrics related to test cases and their status are fine for as as measures of testing progress, provided that all the tests are of relatively similar size. If they're not, you have to break them down into subgroups that are of similar size. So I can measure how far along I've gotten in my testing using test case metrics, but They don't tell you anywhere near what people think they're telling you about requirements or about quality of shooting. The only way to really get a sense of what the quality of the system is, is to look at the status of testing in terms of the status of the test basis elements. So the test basis is just what your tests are based on. Now, we commonly, and and many many people commonly think that if you're talking about coverage, you're talking about the test basis, you're talking about requirement specifications. Okay, so that's partly true in the sense that, yes, I do need to trace my test and the results back to the requirement specification because certainly I need to know for each requirement specification element whether it has um, passed its test or not. You know, the the the, the requirements cannot be said to be met or to use the agile term done if the um, requirement still has associated failing tests. so that's certainly necessary, but it's not sufficient because you can have a situation where all of the um, requirements are indeed tested and and all of the tests associated with those requirements have passed and you still have major problems with your test coverage and or major problems with quality. Uh, Remember, requirements by themselves are always going to be incomplete and they're always going to be imperfect. You're never going to be able to capture all of the behaviors, intended or otherwise, of a piece of software in a requirement specification. I've never seen one that did. And being that it's a human work product, Like every other human work product, it will have bugs in it. It will have defects. So those defects will, of course, show up as um, in in your test, if you're basing your test on the requirements alone. And any gaps in the requirements will, of course, show up as gaps in your test. So what do I do to deal with that? Well, what you need to do is think of coverage as a multidimensional problem. Look at the other uh, dimensions of coverage that need to be addressed. So if you're doing risk-based testing, you'll have risk items, those need to be covered. Supported configurations, those also need to be covered. Different kinds of data in your, in your databases, look at how the data can vary and make sure that you're testing across the different kinds of data that you can need to deal with. Users and user performance. Generally, this includes like role-based security where people have different uh, uh, privileges, uh, permissions based on their role, but it also includes things like how people interact with software and systems. So all of these are things that need to be addressed. Now I'm going to do a um, repeat of a webinar that I did a few years ago. I'm going to give a presentation again with new observations, of course, on the dimensions of test coverage. And so if you're looking at this one, hmm, you know, this is something I really need to think about more and be able to explain better to other people. I will talk about it more uh, in, in an upcoming webinar. But key takeaway here, make sure people understand it's not just a matter of testing the requirements. That by itself is not enough. Testing of the requirements is only verification. You also have to have validation pieces. Validation is making sure that the problem, that the user or customer's problem is actually solved. Okay, well, here's another uh, misconception that's kind of related to the the first one, I uh, Out of being able to find all the bugs. So this is kind of the well, what do you mean there are problems in production? The test team signed off on the release. Um, now, personally, I'm a big disbeliever in sign off. <laughs> By disbeliever, I mean don't do it. I. I recommend not doing it because anytime you have um <clears throat> you have testing team involved in that it seems like it devolves into that idea so well the testers the testers must think that they found all the bugs so i mean if you are going to to approve releases or sign off on a release that's just your company culture people need to understand that what this means is You've tested as thoroughly as you can, given the constraints that you're under. People have adequate confidence that the system will work under those tested conditions. all the risks have been identified um, and uh, addressed to the extent that we're able to address them. I and the risks that remain are considered acceptable by everybody. And we found uh, almost all of the most important bugs. And that's what that can mean. All right. Assuming you you have to do your job well. Assuming that, that people didn't put obstacles in your way, um, And remember, it can only mean that if you've covered the things you need to cover so it gets back to adequacy of the test basis. So, watch out for misunderstandings here because many times what I see is that when a test team is asked to, to sign off on a release, it ends up uh, being interpreted as well, the testers are saying there aren't going to be any problems with that, uh, which, of course, is wrong. Okay. Um, sorry, I have more sip water Now, another thing that uh, people get confused about here is the testers are forced to do testing and toy sized environments, small scaled down environments with small scaled down data sets. And then people are surprised that environment specific and data specific bugs get passed. Like, well, of course they will. And the thing is that there are certain kinds of tests, certain types of tests that are particularly sensitive to your test data and your test environments. Performance testing, reliability testing, uh, very much so. Uh, security testing can also be um, very problematic if your environment is not a replica of your uh, production environment, and if metadata, uh, in particular, um, metadata describing your your database, is is, is not exactly the same. Um, there can be weaknesses that you don't know about. Um, Security, as I said, that's definitely a, a major one. Functional problems can slip past. Um, the, this is probably less of an issue, but there are a lot more functional problems, so it certainly is the case that there are functional issues that you will nest, and just issues associated with uh, scalability. ability to, to handle large volumes of data, large volumes of users, etc. Um That's another one that's, uh, uh, something that's likely to slip past you if you did an environments are not realistic. So in place where I've seen a lot of people um interpreting test results in these these five test types based on inadequate test data, inadequate test environments, and thinking, Oh well we're okay and then they go into production and weeks uh, so we are not Okay, now, um, in a perfect world, you would have anonymized production data, and you'd be able to use that for testing. Um, So the volume is the same, all of its properties are the same, but it happens to be anonymized so that there's no risk of leakage of uh, personal information. Also, in the same perfect world, you would have a test environment that was an absolute, realistic replica of the production environment, And so you'd be testing against what was effectively production data in a production environment, um, and you wouldn't have to worry about anything slipping past you because of um, in uh, inadequate, unrealistic data environment. Now, unfortunately, the reality is that um, getting access to that volume of test data and being able to anonymize the test data and being able to replicate the production environment or in this case, production environment, uh, this uh, is, a, is a bigger and bigger issue. And I, I think that people aren't confronting the the risk especially with this as... Um, Directly as, as they really need to. This is this is something that uh, um, people need to think about a lot more. And as testers, we need to help managers and developers understand uh, the kinds of risks that we can't uh, address uh, without anonymized production data for testing and realistic uh, test environments. I did an assessment once where. Um, we were looking at a very high rate of false positives. Now, a false positive is when somebody files a bug report and it turns out that the underlying behavior is actually correct. Um, and it's a waste of time. It's frustrating. Um, if there's a lot of them, it can slow the project down, possibly uh, put the project at risk for late delivery. Now, this what I usually look for in an assessment is a false positive rate that's about 5% or less. I figured that's, you know, there's going to be some amount of noise in the signal. You know, about 5% of less can go to that. Well, this one particular organization, they were at like 30%, something like that. Really high. Um, and the assertion was that the reason this was happening is because the testers didn't have adequate uh, experience with testing and uh, with, uh, using the product, excuse me, in um, actual operation. This is a, an industrial control product that was used for uh, uh, pharmaceutical plants and oil refineries and so forth. And um, so the, the developers, when I was asking them why, why are there so many false positives, they said, well, the testers don't have sufficient plant experience. And when I say plant experience, I don't mean, you know, being a house plant. I mean working, working in one of these pharmaceutical plants or oil refineries. Well, it turns out that when I looked at the, I asked the test manager to give me um, two sets of data. The false positive rate for each individual tester, together with the number of years of plant experience that that particular tester had, Because if if the assertion was correct that it was about skill, then the false positive rate would go down as the number of years went up. Well, I did a scatter plot using Excel, and guess what? There was basically no correlation. It really looked like a shotgun blast on a piece of paper. It was a random distribution. The R-squared value was like 0.1 or something like that. It It was just no correlation. So when people say oh those testers don't know what they're doing and that's why they're fine bug reports are not a uh yeah some number of those are probably the, the, that's probably the bug but look at it more closely before you accept that because you know, it turned out in this case that there were two particular problems was the, the, the relatively bad requirements um and worse yet they actually had two separate requirements they had a high level uh, set of requirements and a more detailed set of requirements, and what would happen is the decisions would change between the time the high level and detailed requirements were written, um, but the testers wouldn't know that, and so they'd have a situation where depending on this document you looked at, the correct answer was two different things. And then the data and environment issues that I mentioned can also lead to uh, false positives. So, uh, generally speaking, if you have a high rate of false positives, you want to try to identify a lot of different upstream causes behind that and do some, uh, do some evaluation of the facts before concluding if that the tester of skill has, uh, has as much as anything to do with it. Okay, so that's a review of 10 examples of uh, common misconceptions held by managers and developers. And um, the point of this presentation, of course, is not to say, oh, those silly managers and developers, look how confused they are, um, or to point a finger at the managers and developers and say, ha-ha, what fools you are, we know so much more about testing than you. Of course we know more about testing, than managers and developers, because we're testers, we're supposed to know. But what's important is that we need to be able to explain that to the managers and developers. They are, they are. Uh, key stakeholders, and if they are not satisfied, even if it's because they're confused about what we can or can't do, that's still a problem for us. If you are providing a service, and testing certainly is a service, whether you're doing it as a testing service provider or as a testing team that's in a, a larger organization or even an individual tester on an agile team, you are providing a service. And if the people receiving that service are not happy with that service, then they might decide they no longer want that service. So, uh it's important to help uh stakeholders understand what uh what we're doing and why it matters. Um and dispel any of these kinds of misconceptions that they might have. Uh, obviously you're human, you're gonna make mistakes. Um What's important is that people understand, again, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Um, they they dispel any sort of misconceptions about um, uh, these 10 areas that you've looked at, what you can do, what you can't do, and so forth. Um, and also, you want to make sure that people understand what your results need. Um, now, you could say, well, you know, all this wait to see symptoms of these things? I would recommend not. I would recommend, actually, um, now that I've gone through these ten, sit down and um, review them. You can download the presentation, PDF format, go through a and review and make notes on it. And look at, you know, can I find examples where one or more de- managers and developers has this misconception? And um, if they do, then they try to identify ways in which you raise uh, ways by which you can um, remove that, that misunderstanding or misconception. Because as long as these misconceptions are out there, um, that will have a negative impact on your testing. So rather than just deal with these things as they pop up, I would suggest that you go out and go after them in a, uh, in a more uh, proactive, to use a cliche word, uh, fashion. Okay, so with that said, um, with the advertisement up, and we'll take some questions. Well, the first few questions uh, from Brian and Garth, um, almost in, in unison and chorus there, uh, about where the PDF is. Um, so, the PDFs are always posted on the basic library. So if you go to rbcs.us.com, and then go to the resources tab in the upper middle, navigate from there to the basic library, you'll be able to find the PDF of this presentation, you can download it um, and uh, have it cross uh, copy format. Um, Kathleen asked a similar question back earlier in the presentation, but then she left, so she didn't get to hear the answer. Uh, had us a couple, one report of audio problems, of nothing other than that, and there was none of it on my end. Again, as always, if you do have technical difficulties. Um, audio dropouts, anything like that, do let us know uh, after the presentation. If we see trends there, we will uh, um, go back to the Citrix folks after what's going on. Let's see, Jose says, how to know if I have a good set of test data and or good environments? Are there any criteria or checklists for this? Um I I am thinking that that's possible to have a generic I mean you could I think you could come up with checklists. Um and that those checklists could be used from one project to the next, I don't think that it's possible for there to be a generic Checklist that um, uh, would apply to any set of test data, um, any test environment, um, just because of the the um, the differences, right? I mean, um, you know, I, what I could say generally is that the the ideal situation is that you are able to reproduce the test environment, or excuse me, the production environment or environment in your test lab, um, and that you have either, either true production data, or if that's impossible because of um, privacy concerns, and um, anonymized production data, um, and so. To, if you start with that as the ideal case, and you decompose that, de- decompose those two things down to what they would mean in your environment, then in your environment, in your data, then you can you can baseline your environment and your data against those two checklists and see where your discrepancy was. And at that point, you can then analyze your risks and figure out how you want to address those risks. But no, there's no, I cannot give you a generic um, checklist, but there, there's, a, there's basically a generic pro- process for creating your own checklist and doing all the Uh Let's see, Eric asks, do you have DDE members for other areas of testing, such as regression testing, security testing, performance testing, etc. No, I'm afraid not. Um, and I haven't seen any that I would think, that I would find particularly credible. Um, part of the problem is that classification information for defects, including the type of testing that revealed the defect, or should have revealed the defect, could have revealed the defect, that classification information is really poorly gathered and inconsistently gathered across different organizations. Um, so, I just ran into a potential client a few weeks ago they were talking about an engagement. They were looking for similar kinds of stratification and detail in terms of uh, 2 metrics and other metrics. And I said, look, it's, I don't think that exists. I don't have it, and I don't think it exists because I'm, the source data would be impossible to get. Nobody, Nobody gathers every organization seems like gathers, gathers or do that data in a somewhat different way um so it's very hard to do comparisons let's see christina asks for test data slash environment what does test data should be anonymized uh should be anonymized for production environment hmm. i don't think that's what i wrote Really hose that up? No, yeah. What I said was ideally test data is anonymized production data. So what does that mean? So production data that should be clear enough, right? This is data that's actually been been collected in a production environment, based based on actual use. Now anonymized means that the data has been processed usually by an anonymization tool um and that um that tool has uh scrubbed out any personal identifying information uh social security numbers credit card information uh um names associated with uh medical records those kinds of things things that would be problematic that that's what anonymized production data is Um. alright, let's see, what do we got here? Um, Donna says, we call it data masking. Yes, data masking is another, uh, name for anonymization. Masking, scrambling, anonymization. Uh, Philip says, any additional recommendations about how to start a conversation about these ten areas? Uh, hmm. Well, I think this would be very dependent on the kind of people you're starting the conversation with, and you need to consider how they're going to react. Um, Some of these things can be dealt with through a a process to define the uh, objectives for testing and to set goals for them, and I think, is that the next webinar? I'll be the next one or the one after that. Um, I'm going to be doing a webinar specifically about that and how you would go about um, defining your objectives and setting goals. for Part of that conversation is, it, well that, that involves the stakeholders make, defining those goals and setting the targets. And part of that conversation with the stakeholders is going to remove some of these misconceptions. Um, some of the other ones, um, you know, I think you just have to try to identify, okay, who, who has this misconception? What effect is it happening, having you know, on us? And how do I go about um, addressing that misunderstanding in the most effective way, given given that individual? Uh, see Kathy says encryption is another term for anonymization. I guess you mean. Uh, well, actually, would, encryption would be something a little different. Uh, so encryption certainly, in, in the case of encryption, you're not going to be able to see the data. So that would be one way of doing it. Is if you have production data where the more sensitive information is encrypted in such a way that. Um, you as the test team, don't have access to the key uh, during your testing, then that, that would serve the same purpose. Um, but, so, I mean, one example of anonymization would be, you know, changing someone's name and address to be another normal-sounding name and a normal-sounding address, but a, a non-existent address. An address, a name and address that does not correspond to one of your customers. Test- so uh, there are various tools. If you do a search for um, data anonymization tool or data masking tool, we'll uh, see. <coughs> there are uh, commercial as well as, um, I believe, open source versions of these uh, tools, but most, most of them are commercial at this point. Jamie says, uh, our development team is moving towards an agile methodology and moving away from the waterfall. As you state, not all of developers have to use Agile. How would you distinguish which projects to apply which method? Um, I guess the, the reasons that I've seen Agile fail for our clients has been less project specific and more organizational product specific. So one of our clients gave up on doing Agile because they were in the medical Device industry, they, they were they doing regulated devices, and they just found that um, the record keeping rules were such that it just it, it wasn't a good fit for them. Um, so I would say, you know, just maintain an in mind. The other thing to do about, other thing to keep in mind about Agile would be that requires an open mind here that. There are as many different flavors of Agile as there are organizations doing it. I mean, every client that I've worked with, I go in and they say, "Yeah, we're doing Scrum." Their implementation of Scrum is somehow different than every other client that I've worked with that's using an implementation of Scrum. So be ready to to do intelligent tailoring to to make it work uh, in your environment. Lena I mean, says sometimes for the project that I work on, the data does not exist yet because the technology is still in development. I create this data based on third-party docs. Then when the end-user data is available, then I use their data to reconfirm my thought process. Can you think of a better way of doing this? No, in in that situation, no, not really. I mean, there are tools that you can use to generate the data, and um that i would say if you're doing this manually you might want to look at some of those tools because the tools will make the job a lot easier but um yeah i mean your approach that you know that's yeah if there's no production data you're going to have to generate test data to allow you to test um let's see Mark says you mentioned that automated testing and graphical user interface was not impossible we are looking to introduce automated testing to the direction test impact of new browser version. Is this the type of coverage that is being referenced? Well, I hope I didn't say that automated testing via the graphical user interface was impossible, because it's not, it's not impossible. What I've said is, what I said was, I'm remembering what I said probably, was that if you take somebody who has no experience in doing, um automated regression testing, and creating automated regression tests through a GUI, um, then having them create a set of automated regression tests that work through a GUI as a first exposure to that without any sort of mentor or experienced lead to guide them is inevitably going to fail. So, um, now you're asking here about testing different types of configurations. Um, he has a GUI, so different browser types. Um That is definitely a high-risk venture in my experience. Clients that have tried that kind of thing. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways for uh, the appearance to vary from one browser to the next in, in ways that are perfectly legitimate and the tool isn't going to know how to take that into account. So you have a very large number of false positives. I would suggest if you're in to do that, that you get somebody on your team who has done, who has successfully solved that problem before. That particular problem uh, regression testing, part of regression testing, automated regression testing across, uh, um, multiple browser, um, versions and, and types and so forth, because otherwise you, you could have some problems. um let's see uh unix says what is the safest response when a development manager who is an extreme programming advocate claims that since testing is not difficult should be able to finish testing in a quarter of the time estimated by the test <laughs> room i mean it's uh I, you know obviously multiple misconceptions there um <clears throat> So I guess the way that I would approach this is I'd say, well, you're right. Testing as an activity could be completed in a quarter of the time if what you want is a quarter of the testing. So let's have a conversation about what actually needs to be covered. Uh, let's get to agreement on what, what our test basis documents are, what our test basis elements are, what needs to be covered and to what depth, possibly using risk-based testing. Then we can have a separate conversation about how long that takes. But once we've determined, and this this is the point to say, once we have determined what the scope of testing is, then I will use my expertise in terms of how long it takes to test things to tell you what is required to do that testing, just as I would not tell you how long it would take to program something. Please rely on my expertise in terms of how long it will take to cover a certain set of uh, test-based development. or some other, you know, equally polite way of saying, but you you stick to your own knitting and I'll stick to mine. Uh, let's see, Kathy says, based on the size of a project, what is the recommendation for how long testing should take? And I have a similar question from Joella. Is there an industry standard in Agile for developer to tester ratio? Um, so there is no way to give general answers to either of these questions um that well, in general answers that are very useful and meaningful um what i would recommend is that you take a look at tunnel papers jones's work where he's done studies like uh his book uh economics of software quality and also estimating software costs which show typical industry numbers for things like how long the testing takes and how many testers are Involved in testing and so forth, and, and that by, by studying those uh, industry figures, you'll you'll be able to figure out which of those is actually meaningful to you, and um, use them. Um, let's see. I have a question for Brian here. Which automated tools do you like slash dislike? Um, so I get I get a variation of those questions very frequently. Um, usually, it's more it's more specific of you know what is the best bug tracking tool? So I commend you for not asking that that one. Um, but as as with the what is the best bug tracking tool, I'm going to decline to answer this. Um, and and here's here's why. Um, I recently did an engagement for a client, and part of that engagement involved helping them select the test management tool. And the way that we did that was that we that we talked to, I I talked to, I interviewed uh, about 50 different stakeholders who were going to be either users of the test management tool or users of the information that was gathered by the test management tool or some other way affected by the test management tool. And we identified across those our stakeholders about a hundred or yeah, about a hundred specific requirements, both functional and non functional. And then we went out and we looked at about two dozen vendors trying to come up with a short list. And um there were some vendors that looked at those requirements and just immediately disqualified themselves. There was just like you know, we can't do that. We can't meet this. And, and they they were, in, in one case, there was a vendor that the client was fairly sure would make the short list. And they took one look at the client and said, we can't do it. Um, I also had to write off all of the open source projects. Uh, now you might say, well, why would you do that? And normally I would never do that because I think, oh, there's a lot of great open source stuff out there. But. In this particular case, for this organization, it was absolute ironclad requirement that they have um, a commercial support organization that would commit to getting back to them within, I'm remembering right, within four hours of escalation of a problem. None of the open source options could do, to meet those, those requirements. So boom, off they went, right? So I can sit up here and go, well, all right? You know, I mean, some of my clients are successful using this, and some of my clients are successful using that. And you know, it's it's just it's like diagnosing an illness over the phone. You know, no no reputable doctor will ever do that. Uh, and if you get a doctor who's willing to speak to you on the phone and say, uh, you know, you should you should take this pill and you should take this and that, this and that and the other thing, um, that's generally seen as pretty questionable medical practice. So I would say that for to figure out which tools you need, you go through the process that I described it. Identify the stakeholders, the people who use the tool or be affected by the use of the tool, then identify the requirements, and then you can go to your vendors and ask them to to um measure up against the requirements. Um, and um from there you get your short list. And at that point, you're able to do some, some actual tool evaluation. Um, don't fall for <laughs> one of the vendors. This was, is this was remarkable. I, I emailed them and asked them, you know, are you interested in being part of this process? Do you think your tool can be selected? No, oh, yeah, sure. You just go and go out to our website and download the demo version, and you'll see what it can do. I said, no, that's not the way this is going to work. This is a very large purchase. So my clients are spending a well, lot of money. You're going to have to do a little homework here. The way this is going to work is I'm going to send you the requirements and you are going to tell me which of those requirements you meet, and which ones you don't. If the ones that you don't, then um, you can tell, you can say this is this is why I don't think it's a problem or this is how we can handle that. I said, no, oh, no, 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 we don't need to do that. Just download my download the application and, and you'll be able to see it. And, you know, I was, if that was it, I didn't respond to that. I was one of these. Yeah, thank, thank you for playing. Here's your your consolation prize on the way out the door. You know, if you're going to make any sort of size purchase or commitment for a commercial tool and you see that the vendor is not willing to go through the process of looking at a list of 100 or so requirements and telling you whether they meet them or not, they're not for real. And you shouldn't waste your time on them. Let's see, Laura says, to decide on an application lifecycle management or testing tool or any tool, the best approach would be doing a BAR. Um, I have to admit, I've learned a lot of acronyms. The BAR, Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, Laura, can you clarify what that uh, acronym is? I think it might be that what I just, the project I just explained come up with the requirements and a oh, decision analysis report hmm okay well maybe someday you can give a webinar on how to do decision analysis reports and I'll tune in and listen to it um, <laughs> I'm totally serious I got I've not heard that um, uh, used by a client I'd be interested to see I mean what we did is we had we had the requirements in the spreadsheet and the spreadsheet went out, and, it, and there was a column in there, two, well, there are two columns. One is um, a column that said, you know, does do, do we meet this requirement, yes or no? And if no, then there was a notes column where they could explain why it wasn't a problem or that they were going to be introducing that feature soon, um, you know, et cetera. Um, and I, I'd say about... Um, of the two dozen vendors that we initially identified, I'd say about half of them um, went along with the with the process that, that I described, um, and um, you know another bunch either they just self selected out, they looked at the requirements and said you can't do that, or they um, looked at the requirements and said um, we can't be bothered to respond to this, uh, in which case I dropped them being over quite long like the one that said, and then the half that came back uh we had to find three that was, that I said that these are definitely worth evaluating, and then we had three additionals that were like next spring like maybe maybe if you want to relax some of the requirements uh, in certain areas, you might want to look at these guys. I'd say I spent probably about oh twenty twenty to thirty hours total. Um, let's see, Chris, uh, FYI, DAR is a CMMI process area. Oh, okay. Let explain why I don't run into it. So I don't have a whole lot of clients that are, that are CMMI compliant or at uh, least care a whole lot about it. Uh, some, some of the clients have CMMI, have been assessed at one point or another, and they sort of went through that and they got their certificate and then they sort of forgot about it. Um us see Philip says as part of the government we are required to go through a request of proposal process which mandates some of the steps you described vendors have to respond in order to be considered yeah I mean you know if somebody, if somebody wants your money but they're not they, they won't even take the time to go through a hundred line spreadsheet and and see whether or not they can meet your requirements. I mean, that's just not for real. I mean, keep in mind we're we're talking here about a you know at least two hundred fifty thousand dollar purchase, probably given the number of licensees, it'd be closer to half a million or a million. You know, and if somebody can't can't even be bothered to go through and 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 you know spend the time to do the homework on that, that's just that's just, that's just volume. And and. Also, the thing that, too, is it's not just by going through something like that, going through a process like that, even if you find, well, we can't meet that, it still gives you some really good ideas of, hmm, maybe these are some features we should have. Maybe this is a service we should be able to provide. So, if anything, it's a potential client giving you insight into, um, you know, where to grow your product. So, any of you listening out there, work for tool vendors, uh, you know, keep this in mind. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the perspective from the client side and not the pushover client that is, you know, taking candy from a baby and taking money from, you know, clients. I mean, this is what hard-headed managers are going to think, right? And, uh, so, you know, if you're wondering, well, how come we never really get big deals? Well, you, know, you, you got along with the big dogs. Uh, let's see, Lisa uh asked um, i'm is assuming this is this, this this is the lisa from usaa or is this the uh, lisa who happens at the last same last name as usaa lisa um can you briefly explain white box testing um well i can't i can't explain it briefly um but i can give you a brief explanation which is pretty much inadequate and then i'll tell you where to get an adequate explanation that's not brief <laughs> So the brief explanation is that white testing is testing that is based on how the system is implemented. Typically looking at things like um the code itself, data flows, the design, the integration points, um those sort of things. Implementation implementation details. Um now um a more uh detailed answer would be that um, I'm gonna do a webinar on this in uh three or four months. And what I would encourage you to do is show up for that and uh better yet get your development colleagues to show up for that and I'll explain white testing from a code perspective and um Give examples, and everybody will walk away from that, going, "Ah, this is this is what those code coverage metrics mean, and this is how I can use white box um, testing techniques with respect to code." okay well, see, I got a report here saying a am minute in and out on the audio. Um, that's odd. And usually, if I'm having a systemic problem, I'll get an indication from Citrus, and it's not saying anything. But uh, again, if, if a lot of you are experiencing weird audio stuff, so I do send us an email afterwards, and, and uh, we'll look into it. So from what I can tell, this this is actually like, from my side, in terms of my connection through to the Citrix server. it a been a flawless session, I haven't had any um, any indications of any sort of problems. I didn't have like the microphone timeout or some of the other stuff that I um, some of the other stuff that I've had happen. Yeah, go ahead saying it, saying it's solid. But uh, they they probably have a bad connection. Yeah, yeah. The way that the way Citrus works, as I understand it, is it's it's a spoken hub kind of thing, right? So I've got a connection through the central server, and each of you listening has a connection in that same server. Um, if my connection gets screwed up, none of you will be able to hear me or see the presentation. It just, it just it'll stop, right? If your connection gets screwed up, you won't be able to hear me or see the presentation, but everybody else will. So usually if I get a report from one person or two people saying I'm having audio problems, I say, okay, that's, you know, that's a connection issue between them and the Citrix server. What will happen if it's a general problem is that I'll get, like, a dozen reports all at once. Like, all of a sudden, the the question just lights up. And the question board lights up with, "Hey, I lost audio." Yeah, Bruce says I've lost connection twice so far. Probably mine. Yeah, if you uh, if you lose connection to the Citrix server for whatever reason, then you know the presentation will stop, and you can go back in and reassemble it. I realize that's frustrating. I'm sorry that there's nothing I can do about that. But it's um, you know it's it's purely a connection thing and it's, it has to do with the reliability of your connection to the Citrix server. Now Eric said it's the whole time for me. So. Okay, great. Well that was a, a um set of uh, questions. Um, as see Jose said lost audio for three times. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, the only thing I can say is just tune out and tune back in and um, So, um, you know, try to deal with it again. If if it gets to be absolutely, you know, impossible to follow along, and if you don't care about the PDUs or being able to ask questions, you can always listen to the recorded version. Um, But um, I think a lot of you do want PDUs and you do want to have um, an opportunity to ask questions, so then you'll need to to actually attend because otherwise you can't get the PDUs. And... um, you know, if you want to ask questions, and you have to be part of the Q&A at the end. So. Um, so, again, a fascinating session. Thanks for all the great questions. Uh, to close the session out, a little bit more about um, resources. So, um, the um, webinars will run once a month. Um, so, you can sign up on our website, com. If you like this webinar or any other webinar presented just for your company, send us an email, uh, info at or just contact us via our website. Um, you can also sign up for our free newsletter, um, and uh, we promise we won't spam you too much with that. Uh, you will get uh, emails that notify you about uh, discounts on consulting and training services and these free resources. And every other month you get an article, or you get a newsletter that has an article about what we're up to, testing and quality and so forth. Um, on Twitter we're at RBCS, and we're also on Facebook, RBCS-5NC. Good place to uh, interact with us. Um do you remember to send your email over the next couple days if you could be the lucky winner of a free e-learning course. You're registered by attending. Um, and as I said, digital library, basic library, advanced library, tons of stuff out there. Literally, uh, if we just kind of discussed if we're reorganizing our website. There are literally 500 plus free resources available in those, in those repositories. Um, and as I said, they're entirely free. You can go use them, templates, articles, videos, all there for the taking. Um, you don't even have to say thank you, but if you do find them particularly useful and you want to do a Twitter post or something like that and thank us for the template or article. We'd always be happy to see that. And of course, we'll give you a retweet if you do. Um, these uh, webinars are recorded. You can go to the digital library and uh, catch up on them or uh, direct colleagues who could have uh, benefited uh, from the um, um, webinar or any previous webinar. Um, and they're also um, available um, uh, uh, via our YouTube channel, and as podcasts. So we have an RSS feed, or you can uh, subscribe on iTunes So, uh, Lots of free stuff. Um, so we offer these resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a master-for-profit company, and that concludes the webinar. Thanks for joining us.